Hello, I'm Jim Irvin. Welcome along to another episode of You're Not On The List, the podcast about forgotten albums and the people who love them. My guests today are two multifaceted music obsessives who intersect in the small, mysterious realm of one celebrated artist, Nick Drake. Martin Kelly Callerman entered the music game during the punk years by playing drums in bands The Bears and The T-Set. He co-founded the Bam Caruso label with Phil Smee and later became Julian Cope's carer, eventually signing Cope to Island Records. He took over Bill Drummond's position as an A&R man at Warner Brothers for a short while, later joining Ireland himself as their creative director throughout the 90s, being responsible for videos, sleeves and artworks. He uh, then left Ireland to concentrate on Antar, his own management design, publishing outlet and label. The connection with Ireland had led Callie to being appointed manager of the Nick Drake estate by Drake's family, helping to quietly expand and sustain Drake's reputation, a role he has undertaken with taste and sensitivity for the last two decades. Uh, Richard Morton Jack, founder of Flashback magazine, the Sunbeam Reissues label and the editor of the vast compendium of 60s and 70s British music, Galactic Ramble, joined us in the first episode of You're Not On The List back in 2021. Having known Callie for a while and contributing 10 years ago to the Nick Drake volume Remembered For A While, Richard suggested the time was right for a proper biography. He was given access to the family archive and wrote the subsequently published Nick Drake The Life. Not, as Drake's sister Gabrielle says in her introduction, necessarily an authorised biography, which implies a straight-jacketed affair tailored to fit a desired image, but the only biography written with the estate's blessing. Welcome, welcome. So glad you could join me for this. I should apologise in advance to you and the listeners for this terrible cold I've developed over the weekend, so apologies if I splutter or... (laughs) or I'm generally fluffy during the course of this. I'd like to start by asking each of you, Richard, let's start with you. How many records do you actually own? I genuinely don't know. I slightly dread to count. (laughs) 3,000 maybe? Okay. Too many, definitely too many. Callie, what about you? How many records do you possess? Uh, Nine and a half tonnes. Because when when the record collection used to be in my house, I had to get my floor strengthened, so I got a structural engineer... In and he got me to measure a, about a metre of albums and then weigh them and then times them by the metres of albums that I've got. Uh, so I only really know the, the tonnage um, of, of the collection. But, <laughs> I mean, the reason I live in Suffolk was because I could buy a farm and build a building to house all my music. That's fantastic. I'm sure that's what everybody wants. I think when I started out, I, I foresaw some life where I had a sort of salon where I played music to friends drinking malt whiskey or something, <laughs> which I've never achieved. It's never actually happened. But that's part of the thing, isn't it, of collecting, is that it sort of implies some future plan. What did you think you were going to do with all this music when you started accumulating it? I am a hoarder. I don't think I'm a collector. I mean, people say, are you a musician to me? They ask me this. And I say, yes, I play music every day. It's just, it's often someone else's music. Do you think it's a form of addiction, record collecting? Is it? Is it got its own sort of problems attached? I think it's a form of salvation, not addiction. It's a salve, you know. It's, yeah. 
it's there to make things great. <laughs> Richard, what about you? Did you have a, a plan when you started amassing records? Well, I can definitely identify with your memory of, of, of this fantasy salon where friends would gasp at the obscurities <laughs> that you had managed to get your fingers on. The realisation that that barely ever happens, if at all, does focus me on not trying to buy things for any reason other than that I want them or will get pleasure from them. Yeah. Um, it's quite easy to get beguiled into wanting things because they're rare or because you've got everything else on that label. I agree with Callie. I'm not sure. I'd say record collecting is addictive, but it certainly can become a compulsion. Why do you think your life is centred around music? Well, I love listening to it. So I, I just have a very unusually powerful animal response to it in a way lots of people don't have, which they might have to sport or something, mm. um, which I like too, by the way. I felt increasingly as I got into music and, and slightly less well-known music, that there was a lot of history that simply hadn't been written, a lot of questions that hadn't been asked. There was a whole field of knowledge that wasn't being investigated. There were no universities that were funding research into progressive rock bands or whatever. Are there now? I don't think so. It's not a recognised field of study and something like, let's just say off the top of my head, British jazz is a huge and very important piece of British culture and touches on the uh, Windrush generation and lots of very important other areas. But it's just not taken seriously. So for me, there was just an amazing banquet available of people I could find the phone numbers of dead easily and say, God, are you the same guy that played on this record and tell me about it? And I still feel like that mm. with Nick Drake. You know, his story has been told so many times, but as Callie knows better than anyone, there are huge mistakes and gaps in the narrative that can be quite easily plugged. And for me, it's so satisfying being able to find those gaps and to, to speak to people, or ask them questions they haven't been asked before and come up with a, a, a new, fresh narrative. Yeah, yeah. But just to add to what Richard just said, there is an example of a studious academic approach to the research in music, which is the English Folk Dance and Song Society and the Vaughan Williams Library. So when it comes to traditional music from these islands, there is a taxonomy, which is the Raud Song Index, and there is tremendous research being done in Settle Sharp House into traditional music, and I, I, I really like that. There are professors in Beatles studies, aren't there? I've seen, <laughs> seen them around. Callie, when you launched Bam Caruso, what was the music you wanted to draw attention to then? Phil me and I worked on it together in tandem, and we both felt that there was an underappreciated aspect of British psychedelia, which seemed to begin and end with C. Emily play for an awful lot of people. Mm. Yeah, Phil was older than me. He is older than me. And he had a he had a much vaster knowledge of this stuff. And I think we just huddled together. Yeah. <laughs> because when I went to grammar school, I was allowed to go to the disco before we went to school, to that school, because my brother was there. And they had a disco at Christmas. And I remember going into this dark CD room where they were burning joysticks and had liquid wheels and they played See Emily Play, which was a song I just absolutely loved at the time. That was my first psychedelic experience. And it turned out that Phil Smee, he was in the sixth form there. That was his copy that was playing because he was the <laughs> DJ. <so. laughs> oh, that's amazing. John Tobler, who we used to have lunch with, he was a 
journalist. He was one of the people that said to me, the only reason that nobody knows any of this stuff is none of it is any good. And that, for me, was a real encouragement to dig deep into Jason Crest and, and into the English kaleidoscope and, and such like. So, it, again, like Richard was saying, it was completely fertile uh, land, this, and we'd be buying singles for as much as £2. My big boy Pete single cost me £6, I think, which is stretching things. I'd buy any single from 1967. If it was out in 67, you had to listen to it, and you'd have Bossa Nova on one side and then Screaming Psychedelia on the other. It was uh, a, a voyage of discovery. And do you think there was any significance to the fact that you were both into graphic design as well? Was that a big part of the appeal of the period for you? I think it was coincidental because Phil contacted us because he wanted to start a label. He was working for Chiswick Records, doing sleeves for Chiswick, and Roger Armstrong there encouraged Phil to put out records. So he found a local band, which in those days was the Bears, and said, I'll put your record out for you. And that's how we started, really. The design thing, for me, came later on. I was at art school, and that was a way of making money. Oh, so was Phil directly connected with Waldo's records then? Was that was that him? Well, Waldo's was my Elmer Bernstein single, The Jazz at Waldo's, ah, which right, we yes. loved. Yes, brilliant record. And uh, and so Phil adopted Waldo. That's that's who Waldo was. There was a single that I've always loved on Waldo's, uh, Happy Birthday Sweet Sixteen by Clive Pig and the Hopeful Chinaman. Did, did, <laughs> did you have anything to do with that? I, I disliked it deeply. I produced it, yeah. <laughs> I produced it with Phil, and I, I utterly disliked it, yeah. How funny. Yeah. Tell us about the tea set. What, uh, what was your sort of plan with that? A curious group. Ah, uh, well, it's just, I went to art school because I wanted to be in a band, and yeah. all my favourite bands have been to art school, and there was no point going to an academy of music to, to be in a band. Um, Wire were at our art school, at Watford Art School, and they seemed to be doing really well. Suddenly, Wire were were on everybody's lips, and I thought they, they were amazing, and they were a big inspiration for us too form a band called the T-Set. We'd, we'd adopted Wire's guitarist, George Gill. He'd been thrown out of the band. But he left and it just sort of, those things just fell together. There was there was a c- continual battle in the group between Nick Egan, who was the singer, mm. who was very tuned into what was needed to be done to become successful. Yeah. Um, and we would go to the um, Victoria, to the venue in Victoria, and you'd see... Duran Duran supporting Blondie, I think it was at the time. And he'd come away saying, that's what we've got to do. That's what we have to do. (laughs) And the battle was between him and myself because I was just totally entranced by this heat and swell maps. Uh And I didn't see a career path there at all other than those were two bands I absolutely loved. And although Nick and I are firm friends, there was a schism. Um, there was a band in the sixties called the Tea Set, wasn't there? Was that uh, yeah? Was that yeah. one of the singles you came across later on? A Dutch. They yeah, were Dutch, Dutch weren't group. they? Yes, yes. Well, we called ourselves the Screaming Abdabs, oh, and yeah. then we realised that that Pink Floyd had been the Screaming Abdabs, so we changed <laughs> yeah. it to the Tea Set without knowing that Pink Floyd were once called the Tea Set. So I, t- I took that as an omen. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, Richard. You've also ventured into the world of reissuing. Obscure albums. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, your intent behind the Sunbeam label. 
the, the, the object of that label for me was always to put records back into circulation, but also almost as importantly for me was to include as much information and visual material as possible to accompany them. I would always say to band members, you know, what pieces of paper do you still have? What photos, what press releases, what scraps of lyrics and so on. And also, of course, what other songs do you still have hidden away on cassettes or old reels? It was more of a, an exercise in archaeology and in trying to bring everything together in one place, often about bands that never made anything else and never did anything else. So that was always the, the, the intention. And each one was different because untangling all of the different pieces and, and putting the jigsaw together was um, a, yeah, a fresh challenge each time. Now, the Sunbeam and Flashback editions of some of those records are worth a lot of money themselves now, aren't they? Do you know, I genuinely don't know. if, if they. It wouldn't surprise me that some of them might be, but um, there's a lot of music on some of them that you can't get elsewhere, but I, I don't keep tabs on it. The Flashback edition of the John Wonderling album goes for 200 quid, I noticed. Well, that is one of the rarest albums in the world in its own right, so I guess it makes sense that another 500 copies is still only a... A drop in the bucket for yeah. uh, it's a good album. <laughs> so, Callie, how did you get involved with managing Julian Cope? <laughs> yeah, when I when I joined Phonogram uh, and became a marketing manager, what they do is traditionally give you all the stuff no one else wants. So I had all of Steve acts, that was Mark Garman and Test Department, yeah. David Essex, Bob Geldof and the Boomtown Rats, uh, Julian Cope and Elton John, mm. and they said, you know, cut your teeth on that. And so I, I had great fun with Julian, at, with World Check Your Mouth and with Fried on Mercury. Did you have any say in the, in the, in the images and all that kind of stuff? Was oh, that... yeah. I, did, I designed the sleeves and, and was involved with the videos and, and, you know, his entire rehabilitation really as a, as a person because he was pretty worn out after the teardrop explodes. You know, we were really firm friends and particularly with Dorian, his wife. It was a team of us, really, that held a particular belief in the fact that he could sell a lot more records and was a lot more talented than people gave him credit for. And how long did that uh, that last? How long were you doing that for? Until he, when he got successful at Ireland, then I was surplus to requirement, really. Said who? You or him? Oh, I said Julian. I was I was sacked. Oh, uh, I had run my course, I think. No good deed goes unpunished, does it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and also, you know, I, I, I had a different idea of where he could get to. Seeing mainstream artists like Peter Gabriel with So and Kate Bush, you can still be very weird and sell a lot of records. Yeah. Uh, and I think the discipline that's needed to do that, the work ethic is, is incredible. I remember noting once that Michael Jackson spent six weeks just learning one of the dances in, in one of his videos. And, and you realise it's that kind of attention to detail, that sort of commitment that's required to yeah. to get to and stay at the top. It's rigour, you know. Mm. There is Rigour is really an essential... But I've just been reading Nick Cave's book, which he did with Sean O'Hagan, and it seems that everything started to fall into place for Nick Cave when he got organised. Yes. <laughs> and, and I found that quite gratifying, what he writes about. If he, beca- he felt he became more creative 
when he got an organisation together of people to help him and mm. s- three people in particular behind him. And I, I, I liked that because just being out of it all the time is, is not very helpful. No. How did you become involved with the Nick Drake estate, Callie? What, what, what brought that on? Uh, working at Ireland, we didn't have job titles, really, even though as creative director, you could get involved with all aspects. And I thought that there were catalogue sales that were very low on some of the artists and CD was relatively new. And I thought, well, if we put out a, a good compilation on John Cale, Sandy Denny, John Martin, Julian Cope and Nick Drake and aim it at a much younger audience, this would be an introduction to these artists. So I wanted to put these out. Chris Blackwell said, no, you know, if people want to get into Nick Drake, they just buy the albums. But when he saw that there was a set of five, he saw that as a nice little library. So he said, oh, go ahead. And so he did Way to Blue. And that did incredibly well. I I often ask Nick Drake fans, you know, what's your favourite album of Nick's? And they say, oh, Way to Blue is my favourite album. And And that's great, you know, if that's all they need. But by doing that, I got involved with Gabrielle Drake uh, because she was the last remaining Drake and her career was busy, to say the least. And she just felt she needed help with her brother's growing interest. And so we became great friends and enough for me to leave Ireland and manage not just Nick Drake, but manage artists again. Joe Boyd once uh, told me that there was a clause in his agreement selling which season to Ireland that said Nick's albums must never go out of print. Is that correct, or was it sort of simply a, a handshake between him and Blackwell? <laughs> the way I saw it was Chris Blackwell. Uh, we got a list from Polygram every month saying these have now fallen below the sales figures. Polygram couldn't delete any records without our say-so. And Chris made it very clear that Nick Drake's albums will never be deleted. But that could have come from Joe Boyd. And that's kind of amazing, isn't it? That that one thing has probably contributed a lot to his continued presence in a way. Yeah, yeah. I think when Joe signed Nick, this is in 1968, he, he was quite convinced that Nick was going to be a success. He couldn't see how Nick could fail because he was so good. So when Nick wasn't a success, it was a rude shock for Joe. And Joe, rather than saying, well, I was wrong, this guy is hopeless, simply doubled down in his own mind and thought, well, it's going to take longer than I thought it would. But for Joe, it was still inconceivable that it would never happen. So when Joe did move on from which season in 1970 and went back to America for a time, leaving Nick in England still as a recording artist, but without him guiding his career, I think Joe felt, well, the least I can do is insist that Nick's records don't just get quietly forgotten about and that anyone who wants them can still get them. I thought it was incredible that, uh, reading in the book, Richard, that Rodney, his father, had reported that uh, Nick had said to him, I will make it one day, but I don't know if I will live to see it. Uh, I mean, that's amazing, isn't it, to sort of... It's extraordinary, that. yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's sad that Nick had that conviction. Yes, it, it, it's extraordinary, and I'm really glad that Rodney wrote that down. Yeah. So how did you two become involved? How did you meet one another originally and how did you come together to to make this book happen? I managed a band called Psychid uh, from Oxford and the bass player is Richard's brother, Ah. Henry. And so Henry would tell me about his brother and I don't know how we first 
got to know each other but yeah we met at a gig I think must have been one of their gigs and I remember the first time I met you Callie you, you were talking about Akeem Reichel and AR and machines which uh, is that's my kind of conversation but um... <laughs> it's a great chat up line isn't it yeah right but Callie and I yeah there's quite a lot of crossover between our enthusiasms in in music certainly and um, when Callie and Gabrielle put their book together remembered for a while I chipped in with a couple of chapters and bits and bobs that I helped with and and I felt as soon as that wonderful amazing book was published that it also deserved to be turned into a narrative for people who just wanted to read from beginning to end rather than dipping into that deliberately non-linear book and with reservations Callie agreed that, that this would probably be a useful exercise thankfully yeah Gabrielle also I think fueled by a lot of the inaccuracies in other books saw the value in, 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 in this task. So that's really how that all came to be. And what most concerned you going in, do you think? I didn't feel daunted by anything apart from Nick's illness uh, and that I needed to do it sensitively and accurately and not seem glib and not seem accidentally casual about things. And also because I knew it was going to be draining. It's a very relentless and unpleasant thing to write about, let alone to live through. All of the other bits, the, the music and the friendships and the, the anecdotes and trying to pin down when he was in the studio and what instrument he played where and when and which gigs he did, that was all fun and interesting and, and, and I relished that. But the relentless grind of his decline was was where I was um, yeah, most, most uh, nervous. I wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, we learn a lot from it and it has the effect of desensationalising the story, doesn't it? The, you know, all those pointless trips in the car, the constant back and forth to London, the turning up uninvited at friends' houses, the hiding from friends when they come to visit him in and out of hospital. You go into all this tremendous detail. I think you even at one point mentioned an abandoned trip to the co-op to get beer. Mm. So at what point did you decide that this was the approach you wanted to take to lay out the sort of awful monotony of his condition in this way? You know, it's powerful, but it's something that other writers might have thought too sensitive or, or, or would have elided, you know. Well, I dare I say it, the first draft of my book, which Callie soldiered through, was almost double the length of the published draft. Callie gave me excellent advice on that subject, which was aim once and aim well. And, and a lot of the material that I'd included in that much longer draft was, although it had a certain interest for, for Nick's serious fans, repetitive. So trying to distill all of that information, a lot of which comes from his father's diary into a narrative without being boring and repetitive, but without sacrificing a sense of how relentless it was and of quite how ill Nick was, 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 was the challenge. And without wanting to be at all voyeuristic about it, one of the important things to understand about Nick's illness is how serious it was. And there's a counter narrative amongst a lot of Nick's fans that he was getting better and that he was making a fourth album, which was all but completed at the time of his death and that therefore his death must have been an accident or at the very least a, a whim that he didn't necessarily intend to carry through. And I knew, as obviously Callie has known of old, that Nick's death was no accident and that the passage towards it was was very grim and relentless for his family and, and to an extent his friends and I wanted to convey that I think if I'd compressed his whole illness into one chapter it would have 
diluted the truth of it. He stopped largely being a musician when he recorded Pink Moon at the end of 1971. The book almost sort of pivots at that point for me from being a book about a musician to being a book about a family with a very ill member but a book which I hope a lot of readers will find of, of interest, even if they don't particularly like his music, and maybe even find some sort of solace in understanding that, that this is nothing new and, and, and that the way that the Drakes dealt with it was perhaps, you know, instructive and useful for them and so on. I thought it was interesting that he seemed to have been affected by the sense of, you mentioned Joe's disappointment when the when Five's Leaves Left didn't take off, but he seemed to be very... Uh, downheartened by that as well to the point where it appeared to trigger this do you think that's the case or was it this going to happen anyway do you think well in brief I think it was going to happen anyway so I don't think Nick wanted success in the cliche showbiz way but I think he wanted to feel that there was a, a, a decent number of people his age who were connecting with his work and, and who wouldn't want that if you're a serious artist mm. if you're signed to a big record label there's no two ways about it then as now you have to put your brave face on and, and and go out and answer questions and talk about your music and and potentially appear on tv and on radio and in front of audiences and nick just didn't want to do that and i think perhaps joe had led him to believe that he could have it both ways but i think confronted with the need to to promote himself nick, nick froze more is understood now about that that hinge point from adolescence into adulthood when when things can go wrong psychologically and and I think Nick probably was destined to struggle irrespective of his music it was a it was a difficult balance for him and and, and I don't think he ever quite found it I mean today obviously we'd probably discover any kind of neurodivergence in a, in, in a child earlier on do you think any treatments or therapies emerge subsequently that that might have helped Nick I think it is recognised now that since the mid-1950s, the issue of mental health has escalated beyond belief. And so there is a lot more that can be done now. It can involve medication, but simply cognitive behavioural therapy, which didn't exist then, is a very powerful antidote to what people are going through. And you hope that you can just get people really through to about 32 years old and then the hormones change, and things do change. But uh, there are an awful lot of people who are unlucky in, in that. Uh, yeah, a big part of it for Nick was that he was what, what was called then, and probably still now, is a non-compliant patient. He, he just didn't want to uh, accept the situation he was in, and therefore didn't want to take the pills or attend the, the sessions with psychiatrists and so on. And, and so that was perhaps something that stigma at the, at the time created and he'd be more who knows whether now he, he would have engaged better with with the whole idea of being treated how did you feel Callie when you saw the story laid out in this way um, I mean you'd seen the archive and the documents and stuff yourself beforehand but to see it all put down like this what, what did what was your immediate impression I, I personally was relieved because I was aggrieved by some of the stuff that had been written about Nick uh, beforehand. I could understand the romance, uh, the tragedy, mm. but I see it firsthand. You know, Gabrielle lost her brother. Mm. Uh, his dad lost his son. And I can understand that people just think, oh, well, you know, that was a long time ago. Gabrielle, pull yourself together. 
you know, it gets worse. It gets worse and worse as you go on. Mm. So I was relieved to have a, a book that I think is fair and, and even-handed and sober um, about Nick because that'll be left behind after we've all shuffled off. Mm. Uh, on a lighter note, one thing I like about the book, Richard, is the way that you clearly outline the music he was listening to. There's a tendency, isn't there, with somebody like this to see them operating in a bubble, but he was just as affected by pop culture as anyone else, wasn't he? What were the biggest surprises for you when you looked into that stuff? I think it's really interesting that Nick is absolutely universally referred to as a folk artist. Mm. I get it. That just means acoustic guitar. But almost the only field of music that Nick did not listen to was folk, as far as I'm aware. (laughs) Traditional English folk, just no interest to him at all. And he liked the birds. He loved the birds. He loved Tim Buckley. Uh, He loved the doors. And particularly, several people said that he thought Jim Morrison was great. I mean, he was fully engaged with the pop music of his generation and with jazz and with classical, etc. Several of Nick's friends remembered him enthusiastically clamping headphones onto them and saying, you've got to listen to this. And often it would be something that you wouldn't in a million years expect Nick to like, in inverted commas. There's a great oral collage at the start of the second Steve Miller Band album called Song for Our Ancestors with yes. ship's horns blaring and uh, you know, ominous swell of organ and so on. Various people vividly remember Nick saying you've got to listen to this on headphones so yeah that was great because it's so identifiable i i, I totally get that <laughs> not to counter anything that uh, richard has said because he's absolutely right i like to think that nick's plowing of tradition went much much further back and the the tales of the black-eyed dogs and the pink moons are almost biblical in their reference uh, but that's not seen as folk, you know. That's that's just seen as history, <laughs> law. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Callie as well. And I think Nick, perhaps without even realising it, was plugged into uh, a very ancient tradition. I think were Nick now to see himself in a record shop in the folk section next to Martin Carthy and Shirley Collins, mm. he would probably be a bit boggled. <laughs> because I I don't think that was remotely where he saw himself, and I don't think he enjoyed listening to that style of music. Well, certainly there's there's nothing folky about Poor Boy or or those sort of songs, is there, really? No, they they reflect obvious enjoyment of pop. Mm. One of Nick's friends also told me that he vividly remembers that Nick really liked Humble Pie. Fantastic. (laughs) Really? (laughs) And and I thought, fair play to Nick, you know. (laughs) <laughs> that suddenly makes Nick into a much more real person. It's one of those glimpses where you think, you know, he really wasn't this doomy, gloomy guy sitting around in the corner of the room no. until he became really quite ill later in life. But in 1969, 1970, he loved his rock and roll and, and uh, so did most people of his age and personality. I love the little detail you, you said. It was a bit disparaging about McCartney's solo album, <laughs> playing everything on there um, shortly before he recorded Pink Moon. Yeah, I think it was more for Nick that that, that um, when you can have the best classical players in the world doing your violin part or whatever it is, that it seemed a bit um, baffling to him that you'd do it all yourself. But of course, that was just one stray memory that one of his friends remembers Nick saying. Yeah. It feels a little unkind that these 
statements that Nick are often baffling or, or mysterious things that happen to stick in people's mind then get put on the record. Yeah. It's um, worth pointing out Gabrielle being an actor of note. She is the first to say that Nick had different voices for different people. He would speak differently to his dad than he would speak to, to Brian Wells or to anyone else. We're all like that. And so each of us, when we say, well, Nick told me this, you think, yes, your, your Nick was telling you that because of as much who you are. So if you were just to go down one thread and just talk to Molly, Nick's mother, about the Nick she knew, it would be quite different to the Nick that Beverly Martin knew. Absolutely. And in a biography, it's important to try to reflect that rather than to just have this plodding mono version of the individual. It's intriguing to read in the book, Richard, that people who knew him well found Pink Moon tough going because I've always found that a very hopeful record. I find it uplifting. Am I, am I alone in that? I think if you talk about it as a whole, then, then, then there's so much more to it than any one adjective can, can capture. But I think if you're close to someone, Nick's friends already knew that he was a great songwriter and a great guitarist and could convey a range of emotions in his songs. So I don't think that there was any question for them that, that, about that. But I don't think anything on Five Leaves Left or Brighter Later could have prepared them for Parasite, let's say, which is a very upsetting statement, you know, and that there is Nick being Nick, a bit of irony in there, and he might not necessarily be singing entirely autobiographically. And I can understand why someone close to Nick would have felt a bit taken aback by Pink Moon. It's funny, I always thought that I'm the parasite of this town. It just was like just seeing yourself as an ant, a thing crawling about on the surface of this thing. And it's not a despairing thing it's just saying i'm i'm a small part of this place i don't know <laughs> to to me that's got that kind of dear prudence cadence in the chords which is 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 very upbeat i i don't disagree with you i, I think one of the things i've really learned about pink moon and about nick and I, I i i'd be interested to know if callie's had the same experience is that different people have who love him just as much have completely different ideas of what each song means and what it does for them. I, well, I think if you looked at Kate Bush's songs and you hear her singing in the first person, for some reason people know that's not Kate singing about herself. She's being theatrical. And so if you think of a song like Parasite, it is as likely to be him singing from the point of view of someone he knew or maybe even didn't like uh, and put it into the first person. Nick was well-versed with those devices. Yeah. Has your relationship to his music changed over the years, Callie, as you've been more deeply involved in the in the estate? It's not an overdramatic thing to say. I've had the absolute pleasure to work with people who I, I adore their music. Uh, Mark Hollis, Scott Walker, uh, uh, PJ Harvey... And I live in fear of it becoming commonplace, their music becoming commonplace. And in certain examples, that probably has happened. I've always worried about having to think, what was it like when I first heard Nick Drake? Because it was great, wasn't it? But every time, every time I hear, for example, introduction, it just brings me to my knees. It's just, there's very little music that has that long an impact to such a depth 
uh, with me, and that's why I, I call it a salvation, because I know what music to play at any given time, and Nick never fails for me. You sent me an email from someone who wanted Nick Drake to appear on a podcast the other day. Yeah. Um, do you get that kind of request all the time? Uh, uh, maybe one a month. Uh, it's, it's usually from festivals who are trying to put a bill together. Yes. And so they have their wish list. And uh, so... That's yeah. extraordinary, isn't it? There's, there's certain things that we're happy to live with. That's one of them, that people think he's alive. Well, it's very sweet, isn't it? They, they still... They, 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 he's that present that they feel, oh, let's book Nick Drake for our festival. But also Callie has fun sending unreasonable demands... <laughs> <laughs> if Nick is to appear. Yeah. Well, what's currently on Nick Drake's rider for a, for a festival gig? Then? Oh, I no, don't want a, don't want a rider. Yeah. <laughs> There's the ABBA voyage and all that kind of thing. Have there been any um, attempts to do anything that start to skirt that kind of thing? Of, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we say no to all biographical feature films. We say no to any of these documentaries that people want to make which will have reenacted sequences in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we jukebox musicals. We've had a ju- big jukebox musical, two approaches. <laughs> River Man the musical, I can see it now. Yeah. Callie, if, um, if you just said yes to everything, do you think that would inherently damage people's love for Nick's music, or do you think it would not really make a difference? I have no idea because we haven't done it, but we've yeah. only had a very small amount of compilations of Nick, and that's the way it will stay. All right, so let's move on to the albums you've come here to discuss. Callie, you've chosen, well, a real surprise. I mean, this podcast is about forgotten albums, but it's probably fair to say that in certain circles, Richard and my choices aren't entirely forgotten. They just don't turn up on those great albums of all time lists. But I can sort of guarantee that the record you've chosen has been sort of airbrushed out of history, wouldn't you say? Um, uh, (laughs) It's the Chad Mitchell trio, uh, Mighty Day on Campus. It's the kind of American college folk that was huge at the turn of the 60s and sounds like something from really another age now. So let's have a blast of it and then let's talk about it. Down in Galveston when storm winds swept the town The high tide from the ocean, Lord, put water all around Wasn't that a mighty day? A mighty day A mighty day A mighty day A mighty day Great God that morning when the storm winds swept the town The winds began to blow and the rain began to fall The lightning shafts were cracked with Lord and thunder started to roll Wasn't that a mighty day? A mighty day, a mighty day, a mighty day, a mighty day. Great God, that born the storm with such a tongue. Away, away, he went rum by gum, rum by gum, rum by gum. Away, away, he went rum by gum, the song of the temperance union. Yesterday in Old Fall River, Mr. Andrew Borden died, and he got his daughter Lizzie on a charge of homicide. Some folks say she didn't do it, and others say of course she did. But they all agree Miss Lizzie B was a problem kind of kid. Cause you can't chop your papa up in Massachusetts. Not even if it's planned is a surprise. A surprise! So you can't chop your papa up in Massachusetts. You know how neighbors love to criticize. <laughs> 
got him on the sofa where he'd gone to take a snooze And I hope he went to heaven cause he wasn't wearing shoes Lizzie kinda rearranged him with a hatchet so they say Then she got her mother in that same old fashioned way But you can't talk your mama up in Massachusetts Tired of her cuisine, her cuisine. No, you can't chop your mama up in Massachusetts. They know it's almost sure to cause a scene. Put on the agony, put on the style. Let's blow the young folks are doing all the while. And as we look around us, we're very apt to smile. To see so many people put on the style. Young man home from college makes a great display With a fancy adjective that he can hardly say It can't be found in Webster's, it won't be for a while But we know that he's only put on the style Put on the agony, put on the style That's what all the young folks are doing all the while When that's to look around us, we're very apt to smile To see so many people put on the style that's the Chad Mitchell Trio from the album Mighty Day on Campus. And you heard a Mighty Day, Rum by Gum, Lizzie Borden and Putting on the Style. So, Callie, how and why were you affected by this music? Uh, well, I think when you invited me along, one of my hot contenders was the first and only album by Psyched featuring Richard's brother, uh, which I thought would just be too embarrassing, really, uh, <laughs> to wax lyrical about how great I think that album is. Uh, but that's an overlooked album. Uh, but I wanted to work out for myself uh, what was the spark that started everything off for me. Uh, my parents were musically minded. Uh, my mother ended up singing in a London Symphony Orchestra chorus, and my dad had a record collection, so there was always music in the house. We lived in Canada in 1962. My dad was teaching in Edmonton, uh, at the university in Edmonton, and he saw the Chad Mitchell trio uh, and he came home with this vinyl album, Mighty Day on Campus. But it was for me a formative, absolute formative record. And just hearing those clips, I mean, I know that on that album is so much of what my music is about. It was my introduction to what you would call folk music. And it, it's exciting for me to hear it. And they look like the Rolling Stones on the front cover. There's four guys because Roger McGuinn was in the band, Jim McGuinn, as he was then, walking towards us with a, a suitable college in the background. And I think as my parents were both fairly active socialists, there's a strong social leaning to their songs, whereas you may not get so much of that with the Kingsmen and other vocal trios at the time, uh, because there was a very strong Republican college thing going on. The Chad Mitchell trio were anything but. They were protest songs. They had funny songs. Uh, they had heartrending, beautiful songs. And so that was the beginning for me. And listening to it now, as I sort of hinted at the beginning, it does seem like, wow, where did this go? We don't hear anything like this now, do we, at all? There doesn't seem to be an equivalent to it. And yet this kind of the sort of folk trio, like the Kingston trio, were huge uh, stars at the at the turn of the sixties, weren't they? I think I well, you know, I counter that completely. I've worked with the Younguns for several years. There's three guys from uh, from Hartlepool, from Stockton on Tees. I think the one reason I love them so much and work with them so much is because of the Chad Mitchell trio. 
Uh, there's so much. If you go to a Young'uns concert, which I, you know, I hope anyone does, there is so much in one evening. There, you you cry and you'll laugh, and you'll join in. Uh, it's a, they they are superb uh, today, I think, and I, I think it is the same legacy. I experienced a bit of a Proustian rush listening to this record, which I didn't know at all, when Lizzie Borden came on because I realised I knew that song really well and yeah. I couldn't work out I couldn't work out how. Um, I think we must have had a copy of it at home when I was very small, mm. which I think was sung by a woman. So it might have been... Uh, apparently Alma Cogan did a version of it. It's so a, it's a that... classic murder ballad and they make it quite a funny murder ballad. Well, I, I looked it up and it's, it was written for a musical or a, a review uh. by someone called Michael Brown. It's actually a modern song. I wonder if that's the same Michael Brown as the left bank Michael It's Brown. not, yeah. no. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> I know. Wouldn't that have been something? <laughs> it originated in the, in the early 50s. But it's such a great tune, isn't it? Yeah. It's such a roll, rollicking thing. Um, and it gets a fantastic reception from the, from the crowd yeah, here. Yeah. What were the songs that sort of resonated most with you on this record? Can you remember, Do you have any favourites? Oh, oh, Mighty Day. The opening yeah. track uh, just got me, still does. When I started to travel to America for business, I would just hunt out any Chad Mitchell or Chad Mitchell-related record. And you go into Amoeba uh, in Los Angeles and they'd be about 30 cents each. I mean, he left the, the trio to go solo, didn't he, at some point? And so there's solo records by him. There are solo records by him, which I really like. John Denver came in to replace him. Yeah. They changed their name to the Mitchell Trio so as not to lose their audience, which I like just as much. And they've had various reunions over the years. But uh, I think there was always a bit of fluidity, um, as uh, indicated by the rather amusing fact that the record that we're discussing is credited to the Chad Mitchell Trio, but there are four people on the cover. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Richard, yeah, what did you make of it? Did you know this record before going in? Yeah, I mean, to be, I, I didn't, but I know the style, obviously. And to be honest, um, yeah, without the nostalgic baggage that, that Callie has, I, I don't find that style especially entertaining. But I find it very interesting, like you, Jim, that it was so popular and so defining for, for a generation. And it, it also occurs to me that it belonged to a, a world when teenagers didn't really exist in the modern sense. It was just the last gasp post Elvis but pre-Beatles when, when a, a record collection probably belonged to a family rather than to different members of the family and, and I think it's maybe quite indicative of that, that that it was Callie's dad that introduced this record to their household and they may well have sat around and all listened to it together as yes, well but yeah. I, I, you know, there are no coded drug references for the kids to listen out for if they know what to listen out for it, it's it's straight stuff and of course it has power and and uh, serious meaning to it as well as the comedy but fundamentally it wasn't about us and them between the generations and very soon popular music would would take on that color i suppose there's a hint of generational rebellion in the lizzie borden song isn't there <laughs> killing your parents with an axe um, I wish I could work out why I know the Lizzie Board. I wonder if it was played on Junior Choice or something as well. I doubt it. I, d I don't think the BBC would have allowed a murder ballad onto Ed Stupor. <laughs> well, we must have had a copy. That's all I can think. It's very strange. It's also really interesting, I think, uh, to make this crashingly obvious point that Roger McGuinn is on it because so many hip 
artists, psychedelic artists, whatever, had their roots in folk and this sort of repertoire was was known back to front by David Crosby and you name it, all of those guys. Yeah. But this stuff was just in the blood for, for, for that generation of music fans. A lot of them obviously came up through the ranks of these sorts of bands. You know, the um, Barry Maguire, had, you know, all these people had been journeymen for years. Fred Neal obviously was a journeyman as well. And then they found their own voices a bit later on. Uh, of course, is putting on the style version of that on on this, um, which had been already been made famous in this country by Lonnie Donegan by this point. Yeah. So, yeah. were you aware of the skiffle thing, or is that slightly too early for you, Callie? I was only really aware of My Old Man's Dustman because it was on the light program. Yes, <laughs> uh, and and I think that that was probably on Junior Choice. You know, yeah, with, it was with all those other uh, songs and. It's much, much later in life I, I came to appreciate Lonnie Donegan, uh, and that was through John Peel, uh, because regardless of what was happening and what Deep Purple's new album was called, and like he would always play Lonnie Donegan. He was a, a great champion. Dwayne Eddy and Lonnie Donegan came to me via John Peel. Well, I, working as I do with Bill Drummond very closely, he, Bill will accept Lonnie Donegan and skiffle. You know, he can see how important skiffle music was. So I, I dared say, well, what about trad, Bill? You know, and he glared at me. Well, and obviously, uh, you know, Lonnie came out of Chris Barber's thing, didn't he? Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and it was all part of the same. I think it was, have you ever read um, Pete Frame's book, The Restless Generation? That's fantastic. No. You, no. That's Brilliant. an amazing book. Really good book about that whole thing, about trad turning into skiffle. Um, and it makes trad sound really exciting <laughs> um, because there was nothing else happening in the underground, was there, for, for kids. And, and if you were a teenager, that's all you had. Totally valid in that, in that respect as a, as a step on towards the next thing, you know. I'd imagine this was the sort of music that didn't survive the British invasion. Did the kids just turn away from this en masse in 1964? I don't think the kids were into the Chad Mitchell trio. I don't think 16 and 17 year olds were. I, I think that what happened with the British invasion was that it hit 15, 16 year olds mm. in America and their parents were listening to the Jack Mitchell trio. Yeah. But I also think their style is quite strident and quite unhip. And I think they, they got caught out as a result. Um, Peter, Paul and Mary had massive success at the same time as the Beatles. Because they were subtler. They were, yeah, and it was the harmonies and quieter and less less uh, hitting you over the head with the, the gags and the, the message. And the banjo. And the banjo, yeah. So <laughs> I, I can yeah, see why. Right, but I, I can, as yeah. I said, I can still feel the, the, the thrill that Callie's talking about in, in just, well, hearing a live performance of people just doing their job really well <laughs> um it's uh, it is a great example of its thing even if that's something that nobody needs anymore my dad was an academic and a, and a scientist and a geologist I mean, eminent in his field and quite a distant father uh, so when we alighted on things which we did often to do with art and music that we agreed on it's it, it's a fantastic feeling yeah when you when you can bond with your parents, I, I didn't ever have anything to rebel against. You know, in 1977, when when people felt that they were rebelling against this, that, and the other, I, I felt bereft. 
I had lovely parents. And yes. <laughs> I was deprived. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was pretty much the same. I think I, I had a similar thing. I, I sort of looked at punk, you know, I thought, well, yeah, this is all right. But I never felt the need to dress up in the gear and, and align myself with the tribe. And I think that's something that... But the, great, the greatest benefit from punk, even though I bought fantastic records, which I play to this day, made by supposedly punk artists, was the fact that so many of my friends got rid of their albums and I bought them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I did a, had a period where I got rid of all the albums that I'd bought for 50 pence in Woolworths in the early 70s and I really regret that now <laughs> Be, because they included things like uh, Fresh Maggots and uh, Second Hand Reality and all kinds of things like that. <laughs> well, my friend Pete Barrett could not be seen with the Genesis album. You know, it's just... That, by 1976, it was after he got the Ramones and Paddy Smith horses, it was just that they've all got to go. And I thought, great, send them my way. <laughs> uh, uh, let's move on to, to your choice, Richard. You've uh, selected an album by The Millennium, the one and only album by The Millennium, Begin, which came out in, was it 67? Was it, uh, it came out in July 1968. This is uh, The Millennium from Begin. <laughs> Thank you. 
From the summer of 68, that's the millennium and begin. And you heard to Claudia on Thursday, I just want to be your friend and it's you. So Richard, tell us about this album. Well, I think it's one of the greatest pop records I've ever heard. It's a product of exactly what we were discussing before, that that early 60s folk boom. Kurt Betcher had himself led a folk group called the Goldebriars, who made a couple of albums which were fairly obscure, but they were on Epic and they'd toured and they'd played in lots of coffee houses and been on TV shows called Hootenanny or whatever. Basically, Kurt Betcher had had become a producer as a result of having a couple of hits with the association, including Along Comes Mary, which he co-wrote and which was a massive smash hit. Columbia offered him this opportunity to, to make an album under his own steam of, of his own choice of material and, and collaborators. And he completely stitched them up by spending way more than he was letting on, creating this crazy uh, vision. It is an early example of an album where the aesthetic is almost as important as the content. It's about the sheen and the perfection and the incredible attention to detail in the production and in the mix, rather than about the songs themselves. And although the songs are brilliant and are written amazingly by all these different band members, there were seven of them. It sounds very smooth and flows beautifully. And there's a lot of subversive content if you look out for it in the lyrics. But fundamentally, the statement is, this is what you can do with a recording studio. And that to me was quite an unusual thing in 1968. That smooth, very airless, close Californian sound, which became quite prevalent with Fleetwood Mac and so on later in the 70s is absolutely prefigured in, in the Millennium record. And to me, it just doesn't sound like a 60s record. You know, the sentiments are hippie. Some of the instrumentation is obviously of its time, but the sound, the overall sound is for me the point. And it just sounds like something that doesn't belong to any particular era. And, and actually it was produced by a guy called Keith Olson, who had been at university with Kurt Betcher in, in the early 60s in Minnesota. And, and, and Keith Olson, surprise, surprise, was the architect of Fleetwood Mac's mid-70s sound. And, and you can hear it all on, on the Millennium record. And, and he, between the two of those guys, Olson and Betcher, there was an amazing vision. It, 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 you know, they knew exactly what they wanted to achieve and they knew that it was really hard to do and that it required ridiculous amounts of overdubbing and phasing and rigging up machines to each other. And that vision, it, 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 I find in a strange way quite moving and, and, and I love it. There's a lot of ideas on it, aren't there? 14 songs, there's lots of different things attempted. Yes, absolutely. And, 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 and of course, different people will have different picks. But fundamentally, it, it hangs together, I think, much better than it might. I thought it was funny earlier on when Callie mentioned buying records that had Bossa Nova on one side and Psychedelia on the other. And here's a record where they put the two together in, in, <laughs> in tracks, don't they? There's Bossa Nova and Psych happening simultaneously on, uh, on Claudia and, 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 and other things on this record. Uh, so it does have sort of clues as to when it was made. Um, but you're right, it's got a kind of a futuristic sound to it as well, hasn't it? I think so. I, I think it, it, it still sounds very um, impressive and, and current, whereas 
even something like Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which of course is an incredible record and has lots of ideas and wonderful forward-looking thought in it, doesn't have, uh, to me in terms of its sheer production, the same impact. I find it interesting with Pepper that it's always assumed that it's this great harbinger of the future, and obviously it was incredibly influential, but its ideas are more futuristic than its actual sounds, which are quite old. You know, there's sitar yes. and calliope and orchestras and brass. It's all ancient stuff, and it predates synths and, and a lot of tech. There's a little bit of outboard gear going on that, that might be new, you know, the uh, automatic double tracking, all that kind of thing. But this record, it feels like they're using the studio in a much more kind of forward-thinking way than, than that. Yes, and it's become a cliche to say, you know, using the studio as an instrument, but I think that's exactly what Kurt Betcher recognised was possible now, that, that uh, the limitations that most bands, probably the Beatles more than anyone, had had to work with, went where their talent and their ambition was slightly mismatched with what was possible, suddenly there were 16 tracks. You know, it was unthinkable five years earlier, but I think Betcher was... was and Keith Olsen understood that they could now really go to town. And also they wanted to put voices. They understood that, that the, which I believe as well, that the human voice is the greatest instrument of all and that they could overdub endless choruses and, and uh, iterations of the human voice to create this overwhelming immersive sound. So, so yes, I agree with you. Callie, were you a fan of this record before this moment? I didn't. I didn't know this record. Really? Uh, I did not know it at all, um, uh, so it's been really exciting. I mean, there was a time when, when we all got the enemy and the melody maker and we thought we knew everything about music and that any record that came out, you know, you knew pretty much everything you needed to know about it. And it's only much, much later when I was releasing stuff with Ban Caruso, we were finding things that nobody had ever heard of and I thought, why? Why doesn't anyone know this record? And the fact was, we only knew a tiny amount of what was coming out at the time, and 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 that continues to this day. And so it doesn't surprise me that Richard put this on his list. And I thought, is this an album called The Millennium by a band called Begin? And uh, obviously dived in and listened to it. It's been a joy, absolute joy, to hear in the old Bam Caruso days. I remember being entranced by beat groups that decided to go weird, usually as a last desperate thing. You know, the Unit 4 Plus 2 decided, having heard the Beatles, they ought to go a bit weird. So I invented this term freak beat. But Phil was, he was a big fan of the association, Phil Smead, and he invented the term pop psych, which was meant to really land at, at the feet of bands like the Millennium. It's still pop music. The, the harmonies are still pop harmonies, but it is, it is utterly psychedelic and, and so ambitious, this record. I, I like the fact that I could compare it to the Rotary Connection with, with Charles Stepney's productions yes. and definitely to The Fifth Dimension, uh, The Magic Garden being a favourite album of Robert Kirby and Nick Drake's because I think it's to do with the scope. It's not to do with disappearing down the wormhole of just making weird noises. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I like the fact that it's still got this tremendous form and discipline to the way that the thing has been performed and, and uh, recorded. Uh, Richard, 
Um, much as Nick, Kurt Betcher is someone who's underappreciated in his lifetime, has come to be a cult figure since. But actually, if you look at what his achievements were when he was operating, there weren't that many, really, were there? No. He didn't have much success in any form while he was alive, and it's all happened subsequent. No, I think the problem for him, from what I can gather, is that he was just a, a massive control freak. I think he was likable. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think he was likable and, and, and very enthusiastic and good at getting people to see the validity of his ideas. And uh, But I think what he needed was what he had once and once only in his life, which was the run of a state-of-the-art studio and a limitless budget and the availability of talented people who were ultimately in service to his vision. And um, when it didn't sell, obviously you don't get that chance more than once. And I think the rest of his career was largely spent maybe groping towards a similar opportunity that never quite materialized. Something I find really interesting about the Millennium record is that it wasn't released in the UK. And as Callie will um, attest, you know, that those sampler albums, well, and you, Jim, obviously, those sampler albums were such a huge way of communicating music. In, in, the yeah. rock machine turns you on and those, those things. Absolutely. Yeah. And the rock machine turns you on and the rock machine loves you was the other volume. Came out exactly at this point. Yeah, they were CBS releases. Yeah. It was the same label. Why isn't the Millennium on either of those? It, it, it's a mystery, but they obviously just decided this wasn't something they were going to release in other territories. They were just going to let it sink. And so there was only one, only ever one pressing of the Millennium album. And that was it. Yeah. Well, CBS was just one of the great labels of my youth. And I bought Philly Head with Rock and Rockbusters and all of those compilations, and then tried to buy all the records on those compilations. There were quite a few acts that only got one album out and then got dumped, but they were lucky enough to squeeze themselves onto one of those compilations. Flock. United States of America. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course, CBS had the famous the distinction of, of if they didn't promote this record, they over-promoted the Moby Grape album, didn't they? Which they <laughs> they put out as seven singles simultaneously. <laughs> it's it's so wonderful when you look at that era to see how little understanding, and I don't blame them for this, yeah. but how they had no idea what they had or how to market it or who might like it or not and how much of what mud to throw at what wall. Mm. Um, Kurt Betcher had a band called The Ballroom in 1967 before he did The Millennium. And his, his concept for The Ballroom was that they would sing live over tapes. There would be no musicians and that they would, they would be singing over the top of their own voices. Uh, and they did, I think, one concert at UCLA or something with this enormous sound system playing this, these tapes with them singing over the top. And it was crazy. It was obviously not a, a very hard thing to pull off and to do. Had that worked, maybe that could have been a, a route for the millennium to have an amazing backing recording. But there was no way they could play the instruments on stage like that it, the, because the whole point of the millennium was this overwhelming, enveloping sound. It, it, the point wasn't just to play a hit quickly on a package tour or whatever. Um, we heard from the clips that I played there that It's You sounds rather different to the rest of the record, doesn't it? Do you think it was a good choice of a single? I think they were spoilt for choice because I think To Claudia came out. I've certainly got a single of that. I can't remember what's on the back of it. And 5am, which is very commercial and bizarrely became a number one hit in the Philippines in 1969. I didn't even know that the Philippines had 
its own chart. <laughs> that um, <clears throat> that's got that sort of punchy baby or a rich man baseline, hasn't it? It's you. That's one sort of obvious influence I, I thought I could spot there. But there aren't many on this. Um, the, the 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 big while they they draw out that word while is it in Claudia? Yes. Um, and I thought, oh, that sounds a bit like because. And then you realise, oh, this predates because by the Beatles, doesn't it? The only interview that I've ever seen with Kurt Betcher from the time of Begin, it was in a LA underground newspaper, yeah. and, and in it he says that he wants to create a, a sort of Apple. He doesn't literally say Apple, but he says he wants to create a a, a whole world in which uh, he can make records produce other people's stuff build electronics make equipment for other people uh, he had this idea um, but i think it must have been frustrating for him just to see the beatles doing everything he was desperate to do because they were the beatles and they had the sales my, my relationship with this record is that i got to know it when it was reissued on cd in the 90s when i was working at, at mojo i found at the time that I couldn't get through it all. It, I, it was like a banquet of currants or something. It was really, it was yeah. really sugary at uh, first. Um, but going back to it and, and sort of approaching it um, in fits and starts, I've really come to appreciate it. And, and I think you can hear more once you kind of get into it. You can hear more of the different voices on there, the different writers. You can sense that feeling of its own world being a, an important part of why it works. But the first few songs, I think, bang, bang, bang bang the first three or four songs are fantastic aren't they and then it gets a bit more esoteric as it as it meanders on uh, yes i mean yes it sort of starts out like the association and then gets sort of darker and weirder really doesn't it i agree with you i think listening to it from start to finish is a bit overwhelming and can be a bit like eating too many sweeties it's perhaps best broken down into little bits when you just crank up one or two of the tracks in the car and they really hit home <laughs> yes. and, but sitting but i think probably going back to what we were saying earlier about nick drake with his headphones um listening to it on a really great pair of headphones with your eyes closed is probably pretty incredible yeah all right let's go on to my choice which is the debut album for capital records by fred neal after his spell on electra and it came out right at the beginning of 1967 in january the self-titled album by fred neal <laughs> This old world may never change Where it's been And all the ways of war Can't change it back again I've been searching For the dolphins In the sea And sometimes I wonder Do you ever think of me? I 
with cocaine, cocaine running round my heart and my brain. Oh, bittersweet. Fred Neal from his self-titled uh, album from December 1966. You heard the Dolphins, Sweet Cocaine, Badida, and Everybody's Talking. Well, Fred was a figure like Nick, I suppose, whose mystique and the many unanswered questions about him have generated almost as much interest as his music. I, I realise in present company I'm preaching to the choir a bit here, but for listeners that don't know anything about him, he, he died in 2001, age 65, and hadn't released anything for 30 years at that point. And he'd made only a few records when he was active, preferring eventually to coexist with the wildlife at his home in Florida. Uh, like fellow performers on the Greenwich Village folk scene at Dino Valente and Karen Dalton, he seemed wary of committing his work to tape. He wrote, by all accounts, very spontaneously and would often revisit songs so that they stayed in a sort of permanent state of flux. And his ability to live in the moment like this made his live performances, when they were good, the stuff of legend. In, uh, I think it was 1999, uh, when I was on the staff at Mojo, I commissioned the late, great Ben Edmonds to write a profile of Fred, who was still alive at the time. He delivered an extraordinary piece, having found, much as you did, Richard, dozens of people who knew or worked with Fred, and they'd all been enthralled by him as a performer. Uh, people like John Sebastian, Buzzy Linhart, Odetta, David Crosby, all testified that Freddie uh, affected them like no other folk artist. His deep voice seemed to have you know, seemed to be a source of healing power for many listeners. Uh, in fact, Ben discovered that his music was popular with midwives who'd often play Fred's music during births, his voice being so resonant and reassuring. He was born in 1936 and raised on Treasure Island near St. Petersburg, Florida. His father worked for Wurlitzer, who was a jukebox manufacturer. He travelled through the southern states servicing the machines. So Fred often went with him, um, which he said may account for his love of all kinds of music and also his wanderlust. His father gave him a guitar when he was seven. By the time he was signed to Electra, he was already a mysterious figure, having apparently been a child performer at the Grand Ole Opry, though that's never been fully established, and a hit songwriter. He wrote a song called Candyman for Roy Orbison in the 50s. He liked to blur boundaries. His work mixed folk and jazz and included elements of all kinds of things, country and western, Turkish music, the blues, and he brought all of that onto this record, which was his first for Capital after the spell on Electra. And it's probably as close as he would come to a definitive statement uh, containing two of his best-known songs, Everybody's Talking and The Dolphins. Uh, for me, that song, which opens the record, is a perfect performance. Everything about it is atmospheric, arresting. It's just one of the great mood-altering tracks. Uh, you know, you can put that song on and feel the world's okay. And that's sort of what the 
song's about. This old world may never change. He sings in the verses about how the world, world is still at war and full of hatred. And then the chorus is a non sequitur, as if to say, all that shit's happening, but meanwhile I've been searching for the dolphins in the sea. He doesn't ascribe them with any powers. He just reminds us that other intelligent creatures inhabit our planet and implies maybe that they got it sussed and we haven't. Although he doesn't say anything like that out loud. It's just the rolling maritime feel of the playing is incredibly soothing and Fred's voice goes, uh, you know, fathoms deep. Um, he became obsessed with dolphins while he was still an active folk singer, hanging out with the captive ones that were used on the TV show Flipper, who were based in Florida. And the, apparently the dolphin actress who played Flipper, whose real name was Kathy, was said to have fallen in love with Fred, who would just sit by their pool and play his guitar and talk to them, sort of babysitting these creatures who, as we later learned, were effectively being bored to death by being in captivity, and they were delighted to have a human who took an interest in them. He seemed to understand them better than the people who were being employed to look after them. So even as he opens this record, he's pulling away from the music business with, in this song. He was signed to Capital by Nick Venet, who uh, had also signed the Beach Boys and the Letterman and had helped secure the label's fortunes in the uncertain period between Sinatra and the Beatles. And he recognised that Fred needed to be captured by stealth, so he set multiple tape machines rolling and recorded everything that went down uh, so as not to miss a great take. And he encouraged an atmosphere, he said, that felt as relaxed as a folk club. He also recorded directly to stereo. None of these songs were mixed or equalised after the recordings. The only things uh, that he did, he said, were to edit out the false starts. Everybody's talking was half complete when Neil came into the studio to cut it, and he said to have finished writing it in the bathroom before a take. And he later laughed that he really couldn't remember writing his most lucrative copyright. And another great moment here you heard a bit of Ba Didar is almost certainly an unfinished song, sounding as if having written a melody but no words for the chorus, he just went ahead and cut it anyway. And the Ba Didars become a very effective hook. The album ends with a pretty bold move for 1966, a lengthy improvised jam restructured like a raga. Even though it's undoubtedly a piece of filler, um, there's something sort of mesmeric and, and alluring about it that makes it worthwhile. Because he refused to promote his work, like Nick, uh, someone said his idea of a world tour was a couple of nights in a club in Manhattan. He did only one interview in his life, not Jackie Magazine, but for Hit Parader in 1966. Therefore, this album sold as poorly as albums for Elektra had. And the follow-up Sessions is a nakedly casual collection of one-take experiments and is either a masterpiece of honesty or a total mess, depending on who you ask. But I think this album is certainly the place to start if you're discovering Fred. I wouldn't say it's a perfect record, none of his records are really. But Ben Edmond spoke to Larry Beckett, the lyricist for Tim Buckley, who, um, who said that he and Buckley, having witnessed Dolphins being recorded, they saw four amazing, wildly different arrangements go down, none of which were on the final record. Both independently came to consider this record in terms of its singing, music and lyrics, the finest album of the 1960s. So that's an endorsement. What do you guys know of it? Callie, Fred, something you were a fan of already? I could say I was brought up with Fred Neal amongst a number of other artists that I tended to lump together and then in the late 70s, and particularly the 80s, when I went to America a lot working, and I'd go to these dollar racks hunting, uh, as well as Fred Neal, uh, David Ackles, Phil Oakes, Karen Dalton, particularly Mickey Newbery, uh, Tom Rush, Tim Buckley, Towns Van Zandt, Tim Hardin, John Sebastian, Jerry Jeff Walker and Dick Rossini. I couldn't understand why my American friends tended to dismiss a lot of this as, as old music, as a sort of grown-ups music, I suppose. And that had a great attraction for me because I was buying a lot of country. Uh, at the same time, which to a, to a man and woman, 
a lot of these people just hated. But, but with Fred Neil, there's, there's a greater mystery, I think, with his career. And like I said earlier, and I just saw he died because he mm. stopped making music. You know, in the days where, well, still exists, I study credits <laughs> on the yes. back of an album sleeve, you know, and I, I'd be so impressed that Nick Fennett was uh, involved with Fred Neil because I was, I am a huge Dory Previn fan, mm. and Nick Fennett was very behind her ambitious sounding albums. And then you have Billy Mundy playing on this, who, you know, I love the Mothers of Invention, and that's all I knew about Billy Mundy. Um, and then you realise that he played on Tim Buckley's first album. Yes. He, I think he, he slightly dismissed that raga at the end, calling it filler. But I can imagine that if he was making that raga in 1966 and David Crosby heard it, it sort of gave Dave Crosby licence to, to make yeah, absolutely. these long... And Steve Miller, you know, these long, yeah. drawn-out pieces and definitely John Martin... <laughs> where you can meander yeah i maybe gave the wrong impression i said it was is worthwhile I, I can imagine it being way more fascinating at the time than it is now but it still works i think it's still a, an interesting way to to finish and as you say you can certainly imagine it uh, giving permission to a lot of things that followed and i, I remember the first fred neil album i got was bleaker and mcdougall and I picked mm. it up simply because... My favourite sleeve of all time. Oh, it's just a fantastic sleeve. I have to say, fanboy here, I, I went and stood in the same place. Yeah, me too. Yep. Broad I've daylight, so it didn't yeah. have quite the same <laughs> romance about it. Well, I wanted a photo of me standing at Bleaker and McDougall. I didn't have a guitar case and it wasn't winter. No, it. it's fantastic, isn't it, that cover? It still makes my pulse quicken just as it's there. <laughs> Richard, what about you and Fred? I also have the singles and I have all of his albums and I've got the one he did with Vince Martin and I've got the Hootenanny Live at the Bitter End, which has got him on it. I think he's wonderful. I think his voice is such an unusual instrument. It doesn't surprise me that it's a nice sound to hear as you come into the world. Yeah, The songs are just completely wonderful. There just aren't enough of them, but he's great. One of the things that I find really compelling about Fred Neal is this, this apparently casual attitude that comes across in his songs. Yeah, there's another side to this life that we've been leading. It seems so fatalistic, as if he's not that bothered. He knows these there are bigger mysteries than he can possibly solve. He's going to go where the weather suits his clothes. And it, it seems that the mysteries don't really bother him too much. And I think that's quite a nice position for a songwriter to take. He's not too fussed by these potentially overwhelming facts of life. I also think it's interesting that this album that we're talking about has bazooki as the main instrument, which really works brilliantly. Yeah. I often feel on mid-60s singer-songwritery records that the instrumentation is so boring that the record would leap into life more if there was a tiny dash of something exotic just to wake up the, the arrangements. And, and this album, I think, works brilliantly the songs are great but i think the bazooki which is played by cyrus farrier isn't it rather yeah. than by fred defines this record the sound of it to an extent but without it being at all gimmicky it's just a lovely instrument to hear i, I can't think of many records that have got bazooki on without it sounding a bit ridiculous or, or overtly like a, a statement i would say that within traditional music particularly british irish traditional music bazookis figure greatly they seem to attract people, uh, lutes and bazookis, above... Yeah, the woods band and... Yeah, I, I mean, it's... yes, very much. Above guitars. And I I just, I still hate to hear 
acoustic guitars that are left on the track. You know that the song was written on an acoustic guitar and someone's come in and said, look, this is how the song goes. And you think, okay, lose the acoustic guitar because it's an anchor that makes the song plod. I think by using other stringed instruments, it makes the song come alive. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's very masculine music what Fred Neil does. Singing as a baritone puts him into a different area. He's not a tenor. It's it's a deeper voice. I remember someone calling Jim Morrison the the psychedelic Frank Sinatra because Morrison had a similar approach with a much much deeper voice, mm. as did Scott Walker, as did Dave Ackles. And I think it wasn't particularly fashionable. There wasn't a baritone element to the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. No. And, and, and so I could see why it was not seen as hip and fashionable at the time. I mean, Tim Buckley was obviously a big fan of, of Fred Neil, had a much greater range to his voice, going soaring up and down. And so he was sort of acceptable because of that. Speaking of someone who's stuck with a baritone voice and uh, who, <laughs> who suffered for that reason when I was trying to be in a band, uh, you only had yeah, Sinatra, Jim Morrison uh, to, to, to hang on to, really. That was all, that's all there was. I think Ian Curtis said the same thing, didn't he, in an interview once. He said, I can only sound like Jim Morrison. He's the only other person that sounds, sings like I do. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it, it is an odd place to, to, to be based, but it does work if you, if you can do it properly, I think. And, and Fred certainly... I mean, Fred does actually go way low, but also he's got a, a high head voice that he uses as, as yeah, well, hasn't yeah. he? Uh, I think he goes too low, uh, almost. I think he goes uh, almost to a fault. It's like a trick he knows he can do. Oh, really? He can really go very does that low. Annoy you, does it? <laughs> it, it's not so much that it annoys me as that once I noticed that, I couldn't stop noticing. How low can I go? Yeah. <laughs> he just really goes very low. Um, yeah, on through the pouring rain. It's a it's a great through delivery. The pouring rain. Yeah, <laughs> I think his voice is obviously so distinctive that really he could could have sung an awful lot. He could have made two albums or three albums a year singing other people's songs, and they could have used yeah. his voice as a selling point. And I think the fact that he's so he recorded so little uh, really must speak of how casual and frustrating he was to deal with. Which I think we all know now that he was he he was a pretty maddening in, individual. And, and like Karen Dalton, similarly got this incredible impact within their circle but the evidence of their of their greatness is l limited to the things that they that they deigned to have uh, recorded and you wonder what what did we miss what were these great shows that everyone came away kind of with their heads spinning and you know from Dylan on downwards sort of saying that he was the greatest thing that they'd ever seen what what could he have recorded yes it would have been nice to hear him interpreting other people's stuff wouldn't it I was had the uh, good fortune to spend an evening with Stephen Stills a couple of years ago, and I was asking him about those days in in Greenwich Village. And the second I mentioned Fred Neal's name, he he absolutely came to life. Uh, he was very lively anyway. I hasten to add, but he was so pleased to talk about Fred Neal, yeah. Freddie, as he called yep, him. Yeah, everyone called him Freddie. He told me that the rumor that was au courant around the village in the uh, yeah, early to mid sixties was that Fred Neal was Buddy Holly, <laughs> and that there had been a that the plane crash wasn't true. Oh, that's and funny, that, and that he had 
yeah, that Fred Neal was basically the same guy and, and still said, you know, I just remember that being what was said about him. But it goes to show the extent to which he was already being mythologized way, way back when. It's so annoying that he didn't record more. And of course, we should be grateful for what he did record. But given that he lived for as long as he did, maybe he carried on writing songs and just had enough money trickling in from dolphins and everybody's talking to, to pay the bills. Oh, I and, think he would uh, have had a lot of money from everybody's talking. I think that I, I, yeah. I often look to that about where was the cash, cash cow for that particular artist? You know, did they write Nights in White mm. Satin? Or, you know, where was that? And I think everybody's talking would have rewarded him handsomely. Yes, he gave the royalties of the dolphins away to the dolphin yeah. society, didn't he? Or <laughs> whatever yeah. it was, the, the, the local charity. So he probably, yes, just lived off everybody's talking. He did do occasional gigs for the Dolphin Charity and various sort of maritime things. He rode a bike around a lot, apparently, and he would arrive at gigs on a bicycle and, and sing a few songs uh, live. And somebody, who bought him on once? Uh, that was, that was a, a big Dolphin Project gig in the mid-70s with Joni Mitchell and, and, and Bob Dylan and who knows who, you know, all, all of those mid-70s cocaine cowboy people. Yeah. Well, anyway, somebody said, I think it might have been Stephen Stills, actually. Uh, the, so the story goes, somebody said, here he is, the greatest of us all, Freddie Neal. And, uh, you know, the crowd uh, absolutely shrugged. <laughs> mm. And uh, he came on and did the dolphins and, and went off to an extraordinary ovation. So he, he could obviously still turn it on uh, when, when required. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for this. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, I'm mindful that the clock is looking at his watch. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed listening to both albums. Um, so have I. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's been really great chatting to you. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Jim. Really fun to blather on about records. Yeah, <laughs> and, and speak to you both soon. Lovely. Cheerio. Yeah. Brilliant. Bye. Cheerio. Bye. Thanks once again to Richard and Callie for joining me on this episode. Uh, that cold I was suffering from turned out to be COVID, my first brush with it after all this time. Uh, so that was enlightening and slowed us down a little bit. This whole season's been delayed slightly uh, due to unforeseen circumstances, and I'm not going to be posting episodes monthly from now on, just whenever I get one done. So do subscribe to the show, and then you'll get an alert every time one goes up. If you want to make any comments or if you've got any queries, go along to jimovin.com, and there's a contact page there. And if you want to hear the music we've been talking about, all three albums and loads of the music, uh, that we've discussed along the way uh, will be on a uh, Spotify playlist uh, You're Not On The List Season 3, Episode 1 Search for that and it'll be there for your further listening pleasure and if you get a chance to like or review the show at the platform of your choice we really appreciate that because it drives potential listeners uh, towards us once the algorithm gets involved that's it for this episode do join us for the next one whenever it may be uh, thanks for listening to this one till then, cheerio bye bye